So good morning. Welcome to our second session on the awakening poems of the elder monks and nuns. Um, we're glad to see that you guys came back because this is a little different format than usual and style. But there's a lot in the suttas, you know, there's a lot in there and um, encountering all of it is part of our practice is to kind of bump our mind up against all these different things and see what happens. So um, we wanted to start out with an opportunity for you to offer any questions or comments or things that you've been discovering as you've been engaging with these poems. We had sent the ones from Saturday and, um, and offered a number of different ways of engaging with these poems. And I wonder if anyone has tried those things out or if you have anything coming up. This is a, a chance before we get into today. Feel free to raise your Zoom hand. Well, we might see your physical hand. Jerry. There's a, Jerry's got his hand up. Good morning. Um, sorry that I couldn't make it on the first class. Um, this morning, I was able to devote uh, time to listening to the shortened version of the first class. Uh, and I've taken the class because my little exposure to these poems, I, I didn't know the monks wrote them. It always sort of gets me deeply. Uh, but I'm realizing the reading the sutras gets me. But seeing this morning, two things Two things. One is, I guess poetry is deep but non-conceptual. So it may not just be these verses. It's the nature of that type of uh, prose that it's, it sort of bypasses the, the, mind, the thinking mind. And so that's probably what touches me. But thing, um, when David was reading those poems from last week, uh, from Saturday, I don't know if it's Anukampa or something like that. I was just shaking like a leaf. Mm. And I mean, this is becoming regular for me. And I, I think I'm probably restraining it a little bit. I, I'm not 100% comfortable with it, but more and more, the more it comes. But it's beautiful. And I don't know how to express this. And I, I told myself I wasn't going to, but then I guess you do well enough if I had an opportunity. It, uh, was it his poem or one about the hut? Which is who read the one about the hut? Uh, did you? Yeah, okay. So to me, the hut was, was in here and it was just vibrating. But I got images of have, just coming back from walking the dog. And it was as if this beauty was infused onto the world. And that was really interesting. I don't know what any of that means. I don't care to know, but I think it happened and I didn't realize it. We really do create the world. And if it's glowing and bright and awakened inside, it's glowing and bright and awakened outside. And I found that. Very nice. Right. Um, so I'm grateful for the poems even deeper than I thought. So that's what I wanted to share. Thank you for letting me share that. Well, thank you, Jerry. A beautiful comment. 
And I love that you kind of didn't know that that was going to happen. And just, um, you know, so we don't know when we engage with these texts. Hmm. Other thoughts, other comments? I, I think I saw Deborah's hand go up. Okay, Deborah. No. Oh, it okay. was the cat raising its hand. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Maybe I'll say uh, just something uh, uh, about poetry. Just quickly here. I heard uh, um, a poet who is um, also a practitioner uh, talk about kind of like the how because poetry has this uh, just a few words it tries to really um i don't know distill down an expression or an experience or something into few words and that's part of the powerfulness of them because it requires some mindfulness to be what's really trying to be said and to put them into few words and sometimes we can feel that we can touch into to that so thought i'd offer that yeah um, Bill, your hand is up. Um, I've noticed in several of the poems of the nuns a defiant quality, uh, anger, um, uh, a firm rejection of the householder's life and of being married and and um uh so there's some heat there so they don't have perfect equanimity yet but there's a feeling that by golly now i know my own mind and i know my path now and um and this is the new life for me um and um uh they don't mind being blunt and and um, um, they're being assertive in their expression of how they're feeling about their old life and now their new life. Um, it's it's, and we so often swallow our own um, um, thoughts or feelings. Um, so it's refreshing to read it. And the other thing that comes through for me is that um, maybe there's some cultural differences between us and our time and them and their time. But what really comes through for me is, is the uh, commonality or, or, or the re- how recognizable their emotions and feelings are. They're really just like us. And the Dharma really is the same from one era to another so those are my thoughts oh beautiful bill yeah and one does hope that the what we're touching into shows us that our mind is i mean the mind operates the same way as it did back then and just um what you said about the women and maybe having a different feeling than the monks phones yes the men and the women came into the homeless life through different doors in a sense um, sometimes, sometimes, you know, men are trapped by gender roles too, but um, they're, they're, I can see why that flavor would come through. Yeah. Yeah. Any other comments from the teachers? Yeah, I'll just say that um, 
for me, there is a, a, a sense for women in that culture, uh, even in today's culture in India, is much more mm. oppressed uh, kind of culture. So for them to rise up, you know, rise up from uh, all of the uh, oppressions, identifications, the societal repeatedly kind of put on uh, them um, takes a tremendous um, strength and power. And we see that in the poem. I think we'll see this again today as we look into some of the other categories of the people you know, who may share some of this um, this aspects of their beings also. And so for me, it was very powerful uh, to see, wow, <laughs> the expressions of, of them rising above all of the um, oppressions and the, uh, the injustice, maybe using more than a word uh, for this. Yeah. So thank you for, for pointing that out. Mm. Sure. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I remember that for women, um, you know, there wasn't support uh, like there is in our culture for a woman to be living independently. That was just not a concept. And it wasn't guaranteed that their alms bowl would be filled or that they, you know, there was danger of attack and rape and other things by being out of the house. So it was a whole different game for the women who entered the homeless life. Okay. These are wonderful comments, and we have more to explore today. So um, the theme from Saturday was um, how is awakening expressed? You know, these are awakening poems. What does that mean? And today we'll go on to look a little bit more specifically at how certain teachings and practices were contributing to the awakening of these elder monks and nuns. So, David. Thanks. Thanks, Kim, and thank Bill and um, Jerry for those early comments, which I, they're, they're great leads, lead-ins to today, today's topic. And um, yeah, I'd like to talk for just about 15 minutes about three of the actually four poems by, by women. And um, as, as you both sort of pointed to, there's something that comes up in these poems. It's true in the poems of monks, but maybe it's more noticeable here, just of the way the engagement with the, um, with the home life and particularly, you know, the earthiness or the, um, the challenges of daily life, how those can lead into, um, in various ways, into a practice, into the teachings, into awakening. And first, I would just like to kind of take a step back and um, recall the words of Patachara. And I first wanted to show an image of the Patachara, the, um, the, the Patachara figure that we uh, have at IMC here, pictured at, outside at IRC, actually. But I think now Patachara resides in the meditation hall at, at IMC. And, uh, and then just refer back to her verses, if I can find them, with this idea of kind of looking for some recurring themes as we engage the idea of specific teachings and practices that show up in the poems. And our initial idea was to sort of kind of talk about illness, aging, and death as 
we, as I looked into poems that, that have those as contexts for awakening, uh, it's so much richer than just kind of the three messengers or um, the like. By the way, I'm going to say things like the three messengers, the five aggregates, and we don't have time. And this this isn't really about going into the teachings. I think most of you are familiar with the teachings we'll mention. If not, we take them up in our other uh, study and practice co- classes, and uh, they're out there and feel free to ask. But sort of going to make reference to them with the expectation that most people are have some familiarity with them. I just wanted to remind us of the part of the Patachara poem that came up again in the guided meditation, I think, or maybe maybe it was just referred to later. But this idea, if we can connect these things together and maybe arguing a little bit against this idea of Jerry's that the poems aren't conceptual, you know, it's an interesting, it's not without concepts that we walk the path. It's in some interplay between the conceptual and the non-conceptual until at least we're free of, of, of a conceptual mind or, um, or we stop seeing the world conceptually. But you can start to see these, that there's, that there's direction in the poems. They're not just, uh, some of them actually are just stanzas that reflect on things. But here there's something about watching the water, this aspect of daily life that is very grounded. I said earthy. This is literally earthy, washing, washing the feet, uh, as Ying said, you know, um, as, a, as a daily practice. And with mindful attention to inherent or intrinsic aspects of it, the way, it, the way water flows from high ground to low seems to bring the mind to a place of stillness and collectedness right? It says with this, the mind becomes still, the mind becomes focused. And, and as a result of that, in, in meditation, it seems to be the implication here, or in a meditative frame of mind, um, the mind was freed. And I want to suggest that in Gill's translation, beautifully done, and Gill is um, very skilled at this. In English, there's two ways to read this. We can say, as the flame went out, in other words, at the moment that the flame went out, the mind was freed. But we could say that also in the same manner that the flame went out, the mind was freed. And I just wanted to point to this as a possibility in the poem that this is also saying that the mind is freed as a candlelight is extinguished. And many of you will know that this is a meaning of the word nibbana. That Nibbana has this sense of being extinguished like a flame goes out. So here's three poems by um, women practitioners, in each case, women who became, who left the, the, the home life in, and, and uh, became monastics and led a life of homelessness. Those are the, um, the, the way we contrast those styles of practice. Um, or the, the way they're frequently contrasted in the texts. And illness, old age, death, or the impending or the uh, imminent death come up in them many times. And in some, in some cases, in kind of simple ways, in the case of Chita, very, very straightforward poem, it's clear that um, although old and at an advanced age, and with the support, leaning on a staff, perhaps the support of the teachings, perhaps the support of community, of Kalyanamita, of spiritual friends, the, the, the mountain is climbed, the practice is practiced, the path is, is followed. And then 
and what I take to be a reference to a way of approaching meditation, letting, leaving, um, letting go of certain trappings of um, the life, maybe not eating, overturning their bowl, propping themselves herself against a rock in meditation. She shatters the mass of darkness, a phrase that probably will resonate with the various ways that Diana pointed out that um, the experience of um, of awakening is characterized in the poems. Shattering the mass of darkness, Diana later told us, maybe she shared that with everybody, maybe just with the group of four of us, that it's only used by women in these poems, with one exception, uh, an exception we'll look at uh, on Thursday. But this particular way of characterizing the letting go of the defilements or the freeing the world, to go back to Jerry's point, when we look at the world carefully, we notice that it's free. So much easier to let the world be free than to try to um, focus so much on freeing ourselves. Anyway, this shattering the mass of darkness is the way uh, uh, Chita characterizes her awakening. Let's look at a couple more, uh, a couple longer poems. And first, I'd like to just read them and then maybe go back for a little, I hate to use the word analysis, but a little bit of um, unpacking maybe of what's going on or what can be seen to be going on in these poems. It occurred to us that it might be nice to put these in our voices, that is, your voices. And I wonder whether somebody would uh, volunteer to uh, read this poem by this woman, Sona, for us. We, uh, by the way, we've decided just to not be too gender uh, bound here. Obviously, I'm speaking about poems by women. If there's somebody here who identifies as male who wants to read these poems, that that's fine. Is there a volunteer to read Sona's beautiful poem? I'm looking for a hand. I see Deborah leaning to unmute. Wonderful. Yeah. I hope you can see this clearly and I'll scroll as you go, but. Okay. I hope you can hear me. Okay. Yeah. I gave birth to 10 sons in this form, this bag of bones. Then when feeble and old, I approached a nun. She taught me the Dharma, the aggregates, sense fields and elements. When I heard her teaching, I cut off my hair and went forth. When I was a trainee nun, my clairvoyance was clarified and I knew my past lives, the places I used to live. I meditate on the signless, my mind unified and serene. I achieve the immediate liberation, extinguished by not grasping. The five aggregates are fully understood. They remain, but their root is cut. Curse you, wretched old age. Now there are no more future lives. Uh, that was wonderful. I am so glad we, tr- we attempted to do that because it's, it's really nice to hear that in, in, in somebody's voice. And I hope the experience of reading it is, is sweet as well. Um, so I'm going to switch game plan here. And instead of reading the next one, I'm going to, I'm going to switch down, just excuse me, and, uh, look at, look at this one a little bit. I've highlighted a few things that pop out to me. Um, 
perhaps there's nothing more earthy or more earthbound than, you know, the procreative acts that we engage in that lead to the bearing of children. Uh, it's interesting, too, that she says 10 sons, which in today's birth ratio would be at least nine girls, too. So this is somebody with a, a lot of childbearing and child rearing experience. We assume possibly sons is just means children in the, in the poly. Um, these are very specific teachings, and this gets to part of the uh, theme for the day. As most of you, I think, will have some understanding, the aggregates uh, are the field in which self emerges. The sense fields are, is the field of um, or a way of seeing um, our reality that makes clear how attachment comes to be or the, the modes and points of attachment. And the four great elements is a mindfulness of the body practice, which is a particularly powerful way of getting access to understanding aggregates and sense fields. All of these uh, turn up in the four foundations of mindfulness teachings and the Satipatthana Sutta. Bringing mindfulness of the body to attention in these things, we come to understand for Sona, brings her to the same expression of freedom that the Buddha uses to describe his freedom and Diana pointed to on Saturday. Meditating on the signless, which we take to be a reference in particular to the um, arising and passing of all things as a center of attention and the realization or the understanding that nothing can be held onto as a um, permanent uh, foundation for contentment. And then we see like Patachara, that the experience of awakening is described as something that where grasping is extinguished. We could say like a, like a flame going out, if we wanted to sort of refer back to um, Patachara. Here we find that the five aggregates are fully understood. And then this is a key part of the five aggregates teaching that as as individuals in the world, we continue to experience the world through or as a, um, as a co-arising of five aggregates, but we don't cling to them, right? So being the, the liberation as extinguished by not grasping in this particular case means not grasping to the aggregates, but recognizing uh, that the world with which we're familiar um, still, still arises. I didn't bold it, but it's interesting. The curse, and I love the way Deborah read it, curse you, wretched old age. <laughs> that was nicely read. Um, now there are no more future lives. It's just an interesting contrast that, uh, you know, this is somebody who is old, has had, I'm figuring, about 19 children and raised them all. Um, and uh, so somebody may be quite, quite aged, but recognizing that there is no, there is nothing, there won't be a return of this particular um, this, uh, this realm of suffering for, for Sona. So let's do this one more time. Gosh, you know what? I'm running out of time. I'm going to do this fast. I'm going to, I'm going to read it myself. Mitakali, um, in a minute. This is another one that's, and we'll send these out to you and you can look through them, but, um, having gone forth out of faith from the lay life to homelessness, I wandered here and there, jealous of possessions, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to analyze this one as I go to save time. Wandering here and there is a way of characterizing samsara, 
the wandering on is sort of a literal rendering of samsara. This is somebody who, although they've become a monastic, they're still in the, you know, in an unawakened place, still jealous of possessions and honors, which speaks very strongly to self and selfing in my reading. So somebody neglecting the highest goal, pursuing the lowest under the sway of corruptions, not in touch with the goal of um, the practice. And then they become struck with a sense of urgency. Samvega is a term that some of you may be familiar with, and I think we'll refer to again later today. And the realization, I'm walking the wrong path. I'm under the sway of craving. And then, and then inspired by some sense that life is short, old age and sickness and death are near, that before this body breaks apart, in other words, before I die, there's no time to not practice mindfulness, to be fully aware to the extent I can be of the world. And then again, apparently in meditation, Mitakali examines in line with reality, the rise and fall of the aggregates. I think this is how maybe she comes free of this jealousness of possessions and honors and the self. And when she stands up for meditation, she's liberated, having fulfilled the Buddha's instructions. And there again, having fulfilled the Buddha's instructions, Diana taught us on Saturday is one way that the um, awakening experience is characterized in, in all of these poems. I guess I bring attention to one final thing before I pass the uh, talking stick, as it were, to Diana. Just that you see in these, and I didn't really underline it as we went, the, the, the centrality um, of the meditation practice in finding a path toward awakening. Again and again in the poems, whether it's the hut or Mitakali, the, 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 the clarification of mind, the seeing, in Mitakali's case, the aggregates for what they are, holding self more lightly, seems to be something that transpires in, a, in meditation or a meditative frame of mind. Diana. Great. Thank you, David. Thank you. That was lovely. Yeah, so something that we saw in all these poems that David just shared with us is some of the difficulties that these individuals were having, whether it's old age, needing to lean on a staff, on a stick, needing some support, some feebleness, or lots of childbearing. And maybe this person uh, had so many children because maybe some of them died, right? uh, In ancient India, we can imagine that that might have happened and just the terrible heartbreak of this. Or having jealousy, or craving, seeing how much their life was filled with craving. So lots of difficulties. And then, as David said, we also see in these poems a turning towards something different. So whether it's a meditation practice or whether it's seeking guidance, going to another nun to get some instructions, or whether it's to put the instructions into a specific practice, that is the five aggregates, uh, the sense fields, and the elements. I know we're throwing these words around. Some of you will be familiar with them. And even if you don't know the specifics, just like that there are specific teachings that these individuals turn towards, and then, of course, their awakening. So in some ways, we could see a whole path here kind of condensed into these beautiful poems. So 
Now we'd like to encourage you and breakout rooms to share what is your understanding of this relationship between difficulties this, or suffering and this turn, this pivot towards practice and teachings. This your understanding of the relationship between having hard times and maybe that being a fuel towards practice and teachings. And the way that we would like to do this is um, in groups of four, and we'll do it as uh, in, in a spiral where the first person doesn't say everything they know about the topic, but maybe just adds one thing as if we were making a soup, you add one ingredient. And then the second person, maybe we'll say one sentence or something, add that to the soup. And the third person will add something, then the fourth, and then it'll come back around to the first. So in this way, you don't have to prepare everything that you're going to say when the time comes for you, but instead you can allow yourself to be influenced and also allow yourself to do listening and to feel what's uh, happening as opposed to a maybe a conventional conversation that we might have. So in some ways this is completely contrived, but this is an opportunity for us to explore this topic, the relationship between suffering and this turn towards practice and the teachings. So if we're ready, we can go into the breakout rooms. So welcome back. Here we are. Zoom. Great, great. Welcome back. So now we would just love to hear from you with some comments, some aha moments, or maybe some new ideas or some reflections on poems, something that um, you'd like to share about uh, your time in the breakout rooms. Anybody have like some new ideas? Like, oh, I hadn't thought of that before. Aditi. Yeah, uh, someone in our group pointed out that how uh, they also had the struggles uh, because it was said in the poem, oh, wretched old age. So that felt very relatable. Yes. <laughs> I think everybody uh, aging, right, isn't always uh, this, this, as we age, there's often this sense of, oh, Really? Is this happening to me? Yeah. Anybody else have a comment or a question? I'm sorry, Ying. Yeah, there was a a comment from a lawyer um, uh, in the chat box. uh, And being uh, presented the poem off the cuff without time to absorb them, contribute to a sense of dissatisfaction. Thank you for naming that. I think uh, we are trying different things, but um, knowing this is helpful for us as well. So we're playing with these poems in various ways. We just want to receive that and naming that as well. Thank you. Thank you, Ying. 
And this sense of dissatisfaction is also what the poems are pointing to. <laughs> yeah. Alex. Okay. Um, so, um, well, there was the, the last line, I think it was of the last poem, um, kind of, uh, um, I struggled with, I didn't find, I mean, maybe um, I found difficulty with because uh, she says, um, what she says, curse you old age, something about um, now I've achieved enlightenment or whatever, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and now um, I've, I, you know, I won't, I won't experience rebirth. Um, I was wondering, like, maybe my question is, how does she know that? And like, don't we always like, we achieve a kind of an awakening, but we still have to continue on going through struggle. We, it doesn't really end in a sense, but I don't know. And that's why I'm asking. So, Does any of my co-teachers want to respond? So this idea of uh, awakening and enlightenment in, the, in this tradition is a complete awakening is an ending of suffering. It's the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion, and also the ending of another rebirth. In our tradition, there's uh, different uh, stages of awakening. And so there's true that there's these uh, some first stages where there's uh, a new understanding about the lack of an inherent self and inherent a lack of an emptiness of uh, objects and selves. Uh, but there's still some suffering. There's still a little bit of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it can be a long process to go from the first kind of tastes until there's a complete awakening. So like the Buddha had complete awakening. So these nuns, by saying this, an ending of rebirth is um, saying that they had the same type of awakening as the Buddha did. And this is one of the hallmarks is this uh, knowledge of, oh, yes, what needed to be done has been done. This recognition, oh, okay, there's no rebirth, there's no more suffering. Exactly how that happens, I can't tell you, but that is kind of like a hallmark is there's an awakening experience, and then afterwards is the knowing uh, that uh, things are different now. Is that a, Was that an okay answer, Alex, for you? Yeah, it just seems like a really big statement to make, you know? Yes. Like, like this, the kind of like the, this real confidence, right? There's this, but we know this, that the Buddha did the same after his awakening. He talked about, I knew, yes, David, you unmuted. Yeah, I would just, I think one interesting contrast that I didn't bring attention to, I think it's in Mittakali and I won't bring it up, is that, it, but it, it must be because she says a very interesting thing. She says she went forth out of faith. Um, but then what happens in the course of the poem is that she develops this confirmed confidence in the teaching. So I think there too, that's another aspect of an awakening experience is the absolute certainty that Diana just returned, just referred to the, the knowing that happens with that kind of awakening experience, the shedding of attachments or the shedding of, um, craving. So, uh, I th and each and every one of these poems, I think there's some feeling of that in them, um, some progress to this confirmed um, knowledge that freedom has, has taken place. And that to go back to what um, I think it was Jerry first said, that the world is seen free. You know, there isn't the self in it anymore. It's that the world is, is known as free. 
um, and understood as free. Lori. Is this knowing that you're talking about related to independence in the Dhamma? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. But, but maybe, Kim, you have something you'd like to add to that? Well, Diana talked about two different stages. One is where there's a seeing through of the self, and then there's this um, more final ending of all suffering. And the independence in the Dhamma is associated with the earlier uh, understanding. Um, when a person sees through a little bit, sees through a little bit of the veil and has a, a clear you know, recognition of where they're headed for the goal, then they're said to be independent in the Dhamma, but there's still that last bit of work to do that Diana said can take a while until there's the full awakening. And I just wanted to comment also that this strong statement of I am completely free is called a lion's roar and in the teachings. So you'll, when you hear references to the lion's roar, that's what it refers to. So all these poems are lion's roars in a sense. And we might hear about that again in the next class. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. And Randy, that'll be our last one. I have a question. Um, in these early uh, teachings, early tradition, early statements, or, um, or um, uh, narrations of what it has happened to one, um, there is, it seems like there's a fair amount of this um, uh, recognition of having achieved awakening. And, I, and in the modern age, there are people who obviously have become awakened, but they don't pronounce that. They don't um, display their supernatural powers, even though they have them. They don't go get, um, uh, act as subjects for research at Harvard. And they just kind of say things like, um, well, leave my body alone because I'm going to achieve rainbow body or, um, or you know, similar facts like I may seem like an, a regular person, but actually I'm not. So I wonder what you think about that. It puts to mind to me that the Buddha said that every 500 years um, there would be an increase in degeneration and less people achieving awakening. So I'm wondering what you think about that contrast. Well, I don't have, myself, I have no comment. Uh, you know, there's, well, I, I, I don't have a basis on which I could comment uh, on, on that. I don't know if any of my co-teachers do. I wonder what Kim thinks. <laughs> Uh, um, I think I think you've opened a large area, and it also has some things mixed in it from um, later traditions, um, and so that that's what makes it hard to comment. Also, I don't know that I know. Um, I don't know that I know about people who are fully awakened but aren't talking about it. I have no basis for knowing that. Um, 
And not everybody, I think, who awakens would talk about it. It depends on the person's character. Even in the early teachings, there are said to be awakened beings who don't teach or talk about it. Those are the Pacheka Buddhas. But um, anyway, so thank you for the comment. This is certainly an area of a lot of speculation and interest. And maybe what's important is to take that interest in awakening and see for ourselves um, how it comes about as we practice. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Kim, for your answer. And now we'll turn it over to Ying. Yeah, I just want to appreciate. Uh, well, I, let me do a sound check. Uh, okay, uh, my, my sound is okay. All right. So um, I just want to appreciate the exploration uh, and the comments and the questions. And so we're going to take these words into a meditative form. And I'm happen, um, happening to be uh, on the land of a spirit rock. Uh, for those of you who know where spirit rock is, it's a, a Theravada meditation retreat center. And so I just want to show you um, the mountains, rolling mountains of a spirit rock right outside my window, maybe for you to get a little vibe <laughs> that's going on um, where, right around me as we go into the meditation. Yesterday, as I was walking this mountain, I just felt quite a lot of quietness and stillness all around. And so we will bring ourselves to a meditative mode uh, for just about 10 minutes. Um, so if you like to maybe just set a posture that's a supportive of a sitting for a short while. I would invite you to take some generous moments to establish some connection with the body. And sometimes I'm imagining as if I'm going to see a dear friend as I go at the door. Maybe take a little while for me to connect with the friend. Just like that, as we sit, Maybe it takes a little while for us to connect with our body and our being, state of mind. Sometimes a gentle scan from the top of the head to our toes can help connect, checking. Kind of, kind of like a very gentle, soft, how are you? How are you, the shoulders? How are you, the legs? 
more so. Once you feel some deeper sense of arrival or a sense of now you've arrived, I invite you to rest your attention on your breath. The movements of the breath, the rhythm, the sensations. Maybe you feel the breath moving throughout the body. may also be energetic feel of the breath. Maybe vibration, pressure at different points. So release of the pressure. As we sit, I'll offer a little experiment. I'll drop some words from the poems that we read today into this meditative field. And as you hear the words, see what happens in your lived experience? Mitakali, the nun, said this. My life is short trampled by old age and sickness. Just receiving those words. My life is short, trampled by old age and sickness. Notice any effects, ripples in your lived experience. 
there is a deep truth in what Mitakali spoke. Life is short. In fact, we don't know when the death may come. This breath could be the last one. Knowing the truth of old age, sickness, and death, some vika can arise, a sense of urgency, a sense of a spiritual urgency can arise. Mitakali said, before this body breaks apart, there's no time for me to be careless. So some vika can evoke a simultaneous movement of detachment and also alignment with the Dhamma. Detaching from endless wandering around here and there. Samsara that David pointed out. Detaching from the pursuits of possessions and honors. And instead, we can align with the Dharma. In this poem, it says, I examine in line with reality the rise and fall of the aggregates. We can become aligned with the Dharma. I examine in line with the reality, the rising and the falling of the aggregates. I stood up with mind liberated, having fulfilled the Buddha's instruction.
Thank you, Ying. That was very beautiful. Mm-hmm. So just maybe just picking up the momentum. Um, David and Ying both shared from Mita Kali's poem, where she realizes that she's been living under the sway of craving. And that's our usual way. You know, that's that's also what conventional society urges us to do, encourages us. We can read any billboard or internet ad, and it's mostly about getting more, getting the latest thing so that you can impress your neighbors or making more money or having an exotic vacation, these kinds of things. Um, Even if we don't live a consumerist life, we may realize at some point that we are unprepared to handle the onslaught of aging, illness, and death. We may realize that the way we've been living hasn't really prepared us for that. And so um, for Mita Kali, this led her to practice what she says is in line with reality and free her mind. It's a very beautiful line. So the Dharma offers us a different way of orienting than our usual way that's encouraged, um, a way that's not just under this way of craving. So this way of seeing evolves how it evolves through practice. You know, it actually our view begins to shift, our orientation begins to shift as we practice. So it's a little bit. Um, this is the origin of this phrase against the stream, against the stream of the usual societal preoccupations, and more in line with reality. It's what practice will do to our mind. So I'm going to share today from a little bit longer poem from an elder monk named Godata. And um, that was sent to you in advance, but if you didn't read it in advance, that's okay. I'm going to share my screen in a moment. But if you did, um, it might be familiar. So Godata talks about seeing things differently from a conventional way. And he also talks about the practices that he did or the way he oriented his mind in order to free his mind from the difficulties of the world. One maybe imagines that originally he was quite caught up also, like Mita Kali, and now he has a different perspective that he shares in his poem. So today we're talking about teachings and practices that lead to awakening. David talked a lot about the specific practices that the nuns named in their poems, and I'm going to talk maybe more about the shift of view um, that we can have. I'm going to put this on the screen. Can you see that? So this is um, Teragata, great, 14.2, Godata, and I'm going to slide it up so that we can see just the text. Um, Okay, so what I'm going to do is go through and um, um, kind of highlight the areas that, um, that we can, that he points out in his poem areas where he's starting to see things in a different way that leads toward awakening. So right near the beginning, for example, we have um, this stanza here. Those, so we have the thing about the bull, just as a fine, well-bred bull yoked to a load, enduring his load, crushed by the heavy burden, doesn't throw down his yoke. Then we have this analogy 
those who are filled with discernment as the ocean with water don't look down on others. This is nobility among beings. Is that how you think about nobility? That's not usually the association with nobility of not looking down on people. So right away, um, Godata offers us a view, shows us that he has a little bit different view than the conventional idea of what the word nobility means. So then for me, that kind of pricked up my interest. Um, I wanted to know also uh, other things about how, how he thought. So then he goes on and he talks about our main problem that we have in the world. So elated by causes of pleasure, cast down by causes of pain, fools are destroyed by both, not seeing them for what they are. So we have the issue that we spend a lot of our life in kind of emotional up and down. And, um, you know, life throws us back and forth from things that are pleasing, things that are terrible, things that we like, things that we don't like. And he says that the problem essentially is that we don't see, we don't see them for what they are. And so we go up and down, up and down. How does he know this? Probably his mind was like this, um, you know, kind of tossed about by life. And so then um, the poem a little bit farther down, I'm doing this slightly out of order, um, mentions uh, a common uh, list that there is in Buddhist teachings. So he says not to gain or loss status or the Pali actually says status or honor. Um, but I'm putting this because we can imply, we can see that it's either these pairs. So gain or loss, status or dishonor, praise or blame, pleasure or pain. This list is called the eight worldly winds. And these are said to be um, the concerns of the conventional mind. So the conventional mind spends a lot of time trying to get the four pleasant ones of those and trying not to have the four unpleasant ones. That's like the aim of life, <laughs> is to have gain and status and praise and pleasure, and not to have loss, dishonor, blame, and pain. And that can suck up a whole lot of energy, <laughs> trying to accomplish all of that. So, but he points out that this is um, a problem. You know, this is what fools are destroyed by. They're destroyed by these things that are going to go up and down because they don't see, um, they don't see them for what they are, which is just the ways of the world. That's just experience. It comes and goes. It arises and passes. We don't have a lot of control over that. So then he talks, yes, um, he, he offers two uh, solutions, if you will, to these. One solution is presented in this stanza here. Um, he says, those who in the midst of pleasure and pain have gone past the seamstress craving, that's a little reference that we might have time to talk about, but anyway, have gone past craving, stand firm like a boundary pillar, neither elated nor cast down. So we have this idea of standing firm. That's one solution to not getting thrown about by the world is to stand firm like a boundary pillar. This is something that mindfulness does for us is it present it kind of puts a stake in the ground of place where we're standing and we let things come and go uh, in our mindfulness. 
So that's kind of one way that we can handle these ups and downs of life. And then this um, stanza, just after the eight worldly winds, presents another idea about that. So here he says, everywhere they do not adhere like a water bead on a lotus. Everywhere they are happy, the enlightened, everywhere undefeated. So the idea here is not adhering. So if, I don't know if you've ever seen a lotus leaf, but they're a little waxy, um, kind of like a Teflon pan. And if you put water on it, it just beads up. It doesn't really um, touch the lotus leaf, doesn't get it wet. And so this is another solution to this uh, life going back and forth is that we could simply uh, not adhere to that. And so um, one might say, well, wait a minute, is this a contradiction or a mixed metaphor? We have standing firm and we have not adhering. Those sound different to me. But when I thought about these two ideas that he offers, I think both images are essentially about not getting drawn in, not getting involved. So that's what kind of the quality that unites standing firm and not adhering. So these are qualities that we would associate with equanimity. This is a quality of mind that um, comes about when we work with the eight worldly winds, as we strengthen eventually equanimity in order to be okay with the comings and goings, the rises and falls of life. Um, so we understand maybe that Godata was uh, pushed and pulled a lot by his emotions and ended up cultivating equanimity uh, through these practices of standing firm and not adhering. So we see also that um, a person who is engaged in this kind of practice is not going to have the same values and motivations that we see in conventional society. The eight worldly winds are seen through and they no longer provide a motivation we're not aiming for the four pleasant ones and aiming to get away from the unpleasant ones. Instead, um, we have a different form of what we're interested in. And that is what comes about in all of these later stanzas here, um, which I'm not going to read all of for lack of time. But let's just look at the first one to get an idea of how one does orient if one doesn't orient through the worldly winds. So let's just look at this. No matter what the unrighteous gain or the righteous loss, righteous loss is better than if there were unrighteous gain. So this word righteous should be understood to be um, just or wholesome, um, in line with the Dharma, something like that, being talked about aligning with the Dharma. So things that are, we start to realize that we're not really that interested in pleasure and um, gain and so forth, but we're interested in wholesomeness. We choose wholesome over pleasant. That's a big change in the mind. Um, this is about gain and loss. So just as, a, as an example, I was in a situation one time where I was um, uh, sharing rent, sharing utilities with someone. So I was paying the full utility bill and they were paying me back for the part that they used. And we had an arrangement of this for a certain amount of time. And in the last month that we had this arrangement, we had a disagreement about something else. And they decided that they were um, not going to pay me back for the utilities that month. Um, and so I, I thought about that because we did have this agreement. And my approach was that I, I said to them, well, look, this was our agreement and we're still going to have this 
different way of seeing things on this other matter. But please um, go ahead and pay your portion of the utilities if you think that would be an important thing to do. So I made it an ethical choice for them. You know, I just said, this was the arrangement. Please do it if you think that's important. I didn't say right. I think I said important. But I left it up to them as an ethical choice. They never paid me. Um, they didn't step up to that offer. But I felt good about having not gotten angry, not pursued them in small claims court. You know, I just opened the ethical field. And I don't mind that loss. Um, and they had a little gain, by, um, but it was unrighteous. So uh, that was a clear choice. And I, I sleep well with that choice. So these are the values that one lives with. So we have status of the unaware, lowliness of those who know, you know, we would rather uh, have knowledge, have wisdom and a low status than have a high status, but not see clearly and so forth through some of these other um, qualities. So essentially um, we see that there's this kind of, uh, different way of living. And the fruit of that is that there ends up being, now going to the end here, nothing dear or undear. And this is not a statement about, you know, no capacity for ethical judgment. It comes through actually a long process of making choices where we really are clear on choosing the wholesome, always the wholesome, um, and not say just the pleasant, just the status, these kinds of things. Not to say that we prefer low status, prefer pain, prefer loss. Of course not. Of course not. But um, those are not worth it if the means of getting there is not wholesome in some way, not righteous. So then, finally, at the end, having arrived at this equanimity and this clarity about having different um, values than conventional, then we get to developing the factors of awakening, the faculties, and the strengths. These are, again, references, like David said, will make references to teachings and practices that you may know, or if you don't, um, they can be looked up. And the result of that is attaining the foremost peace, awakening. Um, so there's total unbinding, which is the translators. This is Tanjev's translation. He uses that for Nibbana, for awakening. So... Um, it's inspiring, I think, that we see Godata's path of resolutely choosing against the conventional way of seeing things and resolutely choosing in favor of seeing things in terms of the Dharma. And that steadied his mind with equanimity and allowed his mind to then awaken and become free. Thank you, Kim. Really wonderful. Yet another way to take one of these poems, and in this case, kind of show the relationship between maybe a conventional Dharma talk kind of approach and the, the richness that comes through in these poems. Kim points out implicitly, too, how the teachings, not just specific teachings kind of one by one, but how they're interrelated, at least in a particular practitioner's experience of finding a path and finding that that path leads to freedom, how they bring together various teachings to, um, to create a, a path uh, toward freedom. So let's pause before we get to the end of today and assign some homework, which 
we put quotation marks around and we smile when we say it, but sort of talk about maybe how to prepare for Thursday and just see if there are any questions for, for Kim or um, that, that came up during her uh, teaching or any other questions or comments that come up. Raise a hand also. We're a small group. Raise a physical hand. Um, I think too, uh, we're uh, a nice little intimate gathering. Feel free to unmute and ask a question if that's uh, if that works. Any questions come up for people? Michael. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, point out that it looks like Diana has a question in the chat. Um, oh. She says, how Thanks. does something like curse you wretched or ah. reflect an awakening, the end of greed, hatred, and delusion? Oh, nice. Thanks, Michael, for bringing that to our attention. Yeah. Yeah, that takes us back, you know, a, a step, but uh, which is fine. Um, I don't know if other teachers have a thought on that. I did see that and it, it uh, you know, I, I, that's, that's, um, that's interesting. I guess, I guess I would just say quickly that, you know, we make this distinction between um, the kind of letting go that's possible while we're still embodied and the letting go that happens when the body goes. Above my head here, I have a picture of the, the Buddha's final Nibbana. And this is um, the breaking up of the body and the final letting go of that, you know, attachment to, to the world of, to the world of bodies. So anyway, that's, that's, I think, part of what I get in that contrast between wretched old age and yet this, this certain knowing that this is the last wretched old age. <laughs> so I think that's where there's the awakening in it. It's this sort of that contrast, which I think is, you know, poetic device. It makes us, makes us think as Diana's question um, makes clear. Ron, you have your hand up. And I should have asked uh, other teachers uh, have a thought on that, or is that sufficient? Anything come up? Ron. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank all of you for these um, wonderful teachings. I had a um, question going back to um, the uh, earlier poems from this uh, session. Um, and the question has uh, to do with, uh, what um, what uh, they uh, some of these early nuns uh, uh, were actually craving? Because um, when I think of their social situation, it seems to me they um, they were probably living in uh, villages, uh, you know, almost a very uh, meager type of uh, of an existence. Um, I don't know that, you know, they would be in a situation where, you know, for example, like us, they're not bombarded uh, by advertising for things that they could get. Uh, I don't see them as having access to a great deal of material type of, um, of temptations. Um, I was wondering, would their would their craving be more around actually uh, craving for a sense of security in life, uh, craving that 
perhaps these, um, uh, yeah, that they uh, they wouldn't have to suffer in old age, uh, being perhaps abandoned or whatever. But the question has to do with just actually what it was that um, that they were they were craving. It's a rich question, and we we have only a couple minutes to sort of. Uh, delve into it before ending the day. And I'll say one or two things and then pass it on to other teachers. Uh, you know, I, I, and I, you, you go back to the poems that we talked about earlier today, but in Kim's poem, the one she read, the Godata poem, you know, there's this, um, there's a distinction drawn between the things we, the things we might um, want or need, like shelter, food, security, and our attachment to those very things and, and all the other things that, that we come up with. And that um, it's the attachment and sort of the continued craving for more or for different that where, where the suffering arises. So um, I, I'll just leave it there for a moment, but D Diana Ying, Ying Yvonne unmuted, help, help yeah. us out. Sure, I'll just say a few words. Um that um, it is true that for a lot of these um, um, women in the villages, and you know, they don't have what we have in a very um, rich, materialized society. Um, but the essential um, pressure is a source of really um, arousing craving. I remember, uh, for example, for most of my life back in China, we had no air conditioning. It's got really hot summer and really cold winter. We have no heater. But once we have it, it's like we can never not have it again. But then I reflect, well, I lived 20 years without it. <laughs> this is really amazing. <laughs> so it's really deep in us. Um, this craving for sensual pleasure and things that just make our life slightly more comfortable. And once we have it, it's really hard to let go. And so I think of for the same thing for uh, in the ancient days, when uh, even when there's not a whole lot of other material things that we've got, but there's still a lot of um, longing for things that make our lives just feeling slightly more comfortable and better. And that's definitely one big aspect of it as well. Thank you, Ying. And that's such a perfect segue to the homework because when we take a class, we get attached, we crave homework. We, we can't really do a class without it. And uh, don't get too attached, but here's Ying with some homework for Thursday. Yeah, I saw Diana had a, a wanted to say something, I think. Do you want to say something before I give homework? There's sorry, not a whole sorry. lot. So. I, I did. I just was thinking that we could maybe weave together from the earlier poems that David did and what Kim was doing. Kim pointed out there's these eight worldly winds. We are craving a pleasure, not pain. We are craving fame, not disrepute. We are craving... I don't remember all the words that was uh, in this poem, but we are craving only one half of the spectrum of all of our experiences. So I'll just point that out. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And so, yeah, thank you. 
<laughs> along the same line. I think you, you touched a really key issue, Ron. Um, I remember reading from a monastic, I know we're right at time, saying that even though they had given up everything and taken robes, they are allowed to own, I don't know, five or six things. And they got really obsessed with their robe and bowl. They had to have the best robe and they were comparing their bowl to all the other bowls. And, you know, it's because craving is in the mind. And so whatever we have, whatever level of stuff we have, craving will, will find its way into that. You have more, you still have craving, doesn't matter, you want even more. So if you have nothing, you have craving in the mind, you will crave those two things that you can own. So this is pointing back to the mind as always. And these kinds of comments keep opening up these poems. When Kim says that, I just have to say that the first poem we read, the short one, she puts down the robe, she puts down the bowl. So maybe that's about putting down craving, even for those things, that spectrum that Diana referred to. So, Ying. Yeah. You know, I, I feel the craving to get this all sorted out right here. Also. So, so that may be the homework to really kind of dipping into this poems. And we will be sharing this poems. Um, I love the comment that the Diana um, um, posted in the chat the chat box. Like, you know, how do we understand the statement to curse you, um, uh, wretched old age? And so how do we understand that this come from a, a weakened noun, right? And, and uh, for me, it's a, it's a very rich opening exploration to read some of this poem. So I invite you to read it out loud. Read it from a perspective of um, maybe aversive <laughs> response to this versus how might this come out of knowing, deep knowing what this is and so um maybe you can listen to the recordings some recorded and maybe you can read your uh, read uh, out loud and record yourself and listen to it reading different ways different tones um so that's the homework we will be sharing the poems uh with the follow-on email and i invite you to really soak in and enjoy so thank you. Thank you all. And feel free to unmute. And uh, Take care, everyone. Bye. Take care. Thank you. Thursday. Thursday. Thank you. Thursday. Thursday. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye